Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring their insights to you. Before we get started with introducing our guests, we need to make a comment. We need to let you know that this episode deals with mental illness. If you are hurting or you know someone who is suffering from some state of mental illness, please see the notes for this episode. We've got a link there to a global resource guide with phone numbers and websites in dozens of countries around the world. If you're hurting, please, please seek help. Thanks, Kurt. And just as you noted, we are talking about mental illness with the author of The Mind in the Moon, My Brother's Story, The Science of Our Brains, and The Search for Our Psyches. It's by New York Times bestselling writer and author Daniel Bergner. Now, Daniel's book is about the ways medical science treats mental illness today, and he addresses some of the shortcomings of our current systems and processes as well. Yeah, Daniel was inspired by his brother, who is featured quite a lot in the book, along with a couple of other people. And he tells their stories, told in pretty remarkable detail over a period of time, and it will really open your eyes to some of the challenges that mental illness brings to life. Yeah, I have to say, Kurt, that I wasn't super excited about reading this book, and not just because of the, it's a kind of a heavy subject matter, but because I really couldn't conceive of the troubles that actually exist with our current system. So Daniel's research and his personal journey, combined with the narrative style, really made for a terrific book to read, and I really felt much better and much better edu educated after reading it. Oh, agreed, agreed on that. In our conversation with Daniel, we'll talk about some of the challenges with existing system but also about some of the inner aspects of non-traditional therapies, like the ancient myth about the turkey prince. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll have to listen to hear about that one, all right? Okay. And some okay. very insightful comments he has about pain, and not just pain management or pain suppression. It's, it's, it's some pretty cool stuff, Tim. Uh, it really is. And we hope that this conversation brings some new insights into your own behaviors or those around you, especially if they're suffering from some kind of mental illness. And with that, we encourage you to sit back with a cold draft of insight and listen to our conversation with Daniel Bergner. Daniel Bergner, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thanks. It's great to be talking with you. We are glad to have you. And we're going to get started with a speed round. This is a tough one. Are you ready for the yes-no question? Coffee or tea? Which is your preference? Easy. Coffee. Oh, oh see? Good. This is an easy thing. It's don't, nothing to get all worried about here. So, okay. If you had to have dinner with your favorite musician, actor, writer, or athlete, which one would you pick? Musician. Musician. And do you have somebody in mind? Ooh, I would bring the Stanley brothers back to life and <laughs> oh, have yes. them to dinner. And in my fantasy, let's spin this out a bit. They would allow me to try to harmonize with them on a song. Oh, oh. yes. Yes. I See, love now, that. that could be fun. That could wow. be a really fun yeah. dinner, you know, karaoke kind of style thing there. Yeah. I, yeah. I, no, but in, but it, because it's my fantasy, it goes way beyond the level of karaoke. <laughs> and we are in a heavenly trio. <laughs> well, I got to I just have to. I'm sorry to interrupt the speed run here. But how did you get turned on to the Stanley Brothers? There's a song 
the darkest hours just before dawn that my brother and I, in our much more feeble way than the Stanley brothers, actually play together and harmonize a bit on. And we've been doing this forever. So I don't remember the origin of the Stanley brothers engagement, but it runs pretty deep. That's very cool. Okay. So uh, next speed around question, love it or leave it. Red River Valley as played by David on the ukulele. I'm going to say love it for its vulnerability. Mm. Okay. Fair enough. But is there, is there a but or an and? Well, I'm sure David would agree. There are probably better versions out there, (laughs) (laughs) but no versions that are more vulnerable Ah. and vulnerability has its place. Well, I'm sure we'll, for listeners, this is, a story in the book, and we'll get to that as as we go in. But we have one last speed round question, Daniel. And so in the book, you talk about a parable about a prince who thought he was a turkey. And I just have to ask the question, should we be trying to get turkeys to wear shirts? Is that a thing we should be striving for? Metaphorically only, I want to leave the real turkeys alone (laughs) (laughs) to their rightful place in the cosmos. But metaphorically speaking, Yes, and I hope we'll talk about that parable later. Yeah, fantastic. So, Daniel, we're here to talk about your most recent book, The Mind and the Moon, My Brother's Story, The Science of Our Brains, and Search for Our Psyches. And so for the listeners that who have not read it, would you mind providing just a quick overview of what the book is about and really what you're trying to convey with this? Sure. So the book combines three very personal, intimate journeys with psychiatric conditions. So one being my brother's, who was diagnosed as severely bipolar when we were in our early 20s. Another being Caroline's, who uh, was beset by the hallucinations, the voices that conventional psychiatry would label and diagnose as psychosis. And the third being David, the ukulele player, uh, who has wrestled with depression and anxiety, but also with the withdrawal symptoms that have come on strong in his case when he decided to stop taking fairly common medications, common antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications. So it's those three stories that really drive the book. At the same time, I was lucky enough to be taught by some of our most preeminent psychiatric researchers, neuroscientists who were taking me in a way deep inside the brain, but at the same time saying that in terms of psychotropic medications, whether we're talking about common antidepressants or more severe conditions and their treatments, antipsychotics, we've made little to no true progress in half a century. So in a sense, they were posing a problem where do we go from here? You know, that kind of leads me to a question that I was thinking about. Uh, it's sort of a dual question. One is, has the mental health community, the researchers, the surgeons, the all the medical professionals, have they made any major changes? Has there been any significant progress since 1980s? And then the other side of that is, what about sort of society overall? Has society changed? I'm wondering if you could maybe address both of those. So in terms of the pharmaceuticals themselves, the simple answer is no. We really haven't made progress in approximately 50 years. 
the psychiatric profession, at least at the research level, at the elite level, at the brain science level, I think is suddenly becoming quite candid about the sort of walls that the field has run into and was even really fascinating with me in speculating about why those at the same time and even a publication as revered as the New England Journal of Medicine has acknowledged this problem at the same time and paradoxically I think at the prescriber practitioner level and then at the societal level we haven't really reckoned with this Mm. so for a couple quick examples Take the bipolar diagnosis and young people, there was a recent 10-year period in which that diagnosis increased by 40 times. So think about that. I mean, it's a proliferation of a biomedical concept and a diagnosis that's probably a bit shaky in the criteria that go into that diagnosis. Um, there's still a rush to prescribe. So again, the, the research we're saying, we're saying to a person, we're probably over prescribing and yet we continue to do it. And then let's acknowledge all of our culpability in this. We Americans love a quick fix <laughs> and pharmaceuticals at one point seem to provide that to our minds There are real reasons for our need for quick fix. And my family story exemplifies this. Our parents were terrified when my brother was diagnosed, terrified that he would wind up taking his own life. So there's all kinds of real reasons for that desire. But I think it might get in the way of actual progress and and thinking in new ways about mental health. You talked at the beginning about that this is a book about three stories, three people, your brother being one of them, and then these two others that you bring in. Can you just quickly, and again, this I, obviously your entire book is based around these three, So, but could you kind of highlight the stories of, of those people? And, and you begin the book with a beautiful kind of picture scape of your brother dancing on a boat, and maybe you can start with that and then maybe talk about some of the other um characters or their people in the story, not characters or people. So yeah, that's a, a great question, a great way to frame it. So the book opens with this image of my brother dancing on a ferry boat. We were living in Seattle at the time. Uh, he's on Puget Sound. He hears the vibrations of the boat in combination with the waves slapping against the boat's bow. As a kind of Gregorian chant, he responds to this, he dances to it. And on the one hand, you could say, This was lunacy. On the other hand, what you're seeing is a kind of site-specific art or performance art. And my brother's a pretty, or certainly was, a very graceful young man, young, aspiring dancer, pianist, etc. So something really magical was happening there. Very shortly thereafter, he's on a locked ward. Our parents are being told if he doesn't adhere to heavy medication, Uh, He's likely to take his own life. That medication has side effects, uh, which are quite common and commonly acknowledged. And in his case, they, you know, cause tremors to his hands. He can't really play the piano at the level that he's used to. And so, again, psychiatric advice, he takes himself off medication. There's a lot to be said about the journey thereafter, both dark and I think now 
really affirming. But that's where that journey starts. And then just to mention one of the other main characters, Caroline, and this is a person who in some of us could be downright frightened by. Her voices are often self-destructive. They often tell her to take destructive actions against others. Um, if she were a man, we'd want to restrain her. Um, but what she discovered and what's really a revelation was to me is that the heavy medications she was put on, and there were an, an array of them, had terrible side effects, not very common with antipsychotics. So tremendous weight gain, real body distorted movements, the trembling, the quivering. She also full of self-loathing would pull her hair out. So she's accused of being a crackhead when she's in high school, middle school. She eventually, like my brother, takes herself off the medications and goes through this journey, which in one improbable stage takes her through becoming a roller derby star in Nashville, North Carolina. So much of a star that she's up on billboards all over town, which she found to be kind of curative because it was, you know, roller derby is not what we picture. It's not like skimpy women and enacting little violent moments for the titillation of men. This was just all sorts of bodies in a kind of rugby-like chaos. And she found that to make meaning out of that chaos helped her to begin to make meaning out of her voices and to take a completely transformative approach. And she now leads a kind of revolutionary movement around rethinking how we deal with psychiatry and mental health. That's cool. And what about David? So David is a much more common story, and I included him in the book for precisely that reason. So moderately depressed, was seeing a therapist who felt he was making progress. David, this was around the time when Prozac was really coming to the fore, thought, well, shouldn't I try medication? His therapist said, no. David said, but don't you think? therapist kind of relented, set him up with a psychiatrist, got the prescription, started down the road of medication, and then slowly decided, wait, I want to see who I am without the medication. It's not working all that well. He's a quite illustrious lawyer. I mean, he's a civil rights crusader. He's argued in front of the Supreme Court. So that's like the pinnacle of a litigator's career. Um, and it was when he took himself off the medication that a set of withdrawal symptoms set in that include real acute physical pain and a kind of mood shift that was, again, acute self-doubt, such that this lawyer at the pinnacle of his career began to see himself as completely incompetent, without will, without drive, without the ability to parse a legal document. and. This is an issue, it's interesting, that's getting more and more attention. Only in the last few years have the drug companies begun to acknowledge and as the media begun to explore the idea that what we think of as relatively benign drugs, the SSRIs that are sort of part of our common lives that perhaps about 20% of Americans are on, really are making fundamental changes to our brain and getting off them can have pretty profound effects. Yeah. What, well, you know, what do you think about the 
psychedelics that occur in the natural world, the psilocybin and kinds of things like that. Yeah, since David David was going to ex- experiment with those. So. Right. So part of David's journey is that when the story begins, he's at wit's end. He wants to be free of these side effects, which include this burning pain when he gets up every morning, which is a pretty common effect of withdrawing from his anti-anxiety medications, which were in addition to the SSRIs. So he decides to go somewhat underground to do psilocybin as a way to free himself. And of course, we all know that uh, since then, especially there have been some large studies with psilocybin trying to combat depression, combat PTSD. Now, I don't want to give away whether this works for David. That's part of the story. But I will say this. It's a fascinating dichotomy. So my paper, sometimes great, the New York Times, but every so often makes a slight mistake, trumpeted the psychedelic revolution within the last year and cited two studies. Interestingly, only one of those studies was successful. The other said no difference in outcome from the SSRI. What was the difference? The difference was the successful study accompanied the psilocybin trip with extensive, many, many hours of a very particular kind of therapy. And I went so far as to read through the manual, and that manual guides the therapist toward concepts like, literally, I'm almost quoting, oneness, uh, a sense of union with one's surroundings. This is something we need to get to because it's pointing toward a set of spiritual terms or a, a kind of embrace of larger meaning that the psilocybin helps one get to. But again, it's not a magic pill. If left alone, you may well get a negative result. It's the combination of the two and that expansive sense of meaning that seems to have the ameliorative effect. Let's go back to the question, the speed round question at the beginning when we talked about the the chicken or the turkey and wearing a shirt. And so can you expand upon that parable and and what the meaning of that is? Because I think it's really important and kind of ties into what you were just talking about to a certain degree there. I think it does tie in. And the last third of the book, I hope, converges around the set of ideas. Um, So the Turkey Prince parable essentially boils down to this. I'm skipping past its its eloquence. (laughs) But it's that if there's a person who thinks he or she or they is a turkey and is down under the table pecking at crumbs rather than sitting at the dinner table, the key approach is for the therapist in this, in the parables case, the the king's sage, Mm -hmm. to get under the table and to speak to the turkey on his or her their own terms. Now, where did I first hear this? I heard this from a one-time very conventional psychiatrist who was all about the brain and dopamine, et cetera, but who'd become a quite innovative psychiatrist. He's He's moved to Israel. He's opened these set of houses called Soteri houses, where the key form of treatment is not medication. The primary form of treatment is just two words, being with. Mm. And it sounds so simple, but it's that every staff member is there simply to be curious, to engage with 
people who many of us would be put off by, made deeply uncomfortable by, even frightened by, because part of their existence is engulfed in alternate realities. And the conventional mode of psychiatry for the last 40 years or so, really much longer than that, is to suppress those symptoms, just control that situation. These days, give drugs, never mind the awful side effects that are just going to eliminate or reduce those voices and visions. Soteria and this psychiatrist, Pesach Lichtenberg, take the opposite approach. Let's just engage with those voices and visions, those realities. Let's not try to correct them. And by engaging, we're reducing isolation, increasing connection, reducing shame, reducing sense of deviance. Thus, we're reducing the hold, actually, that those phantasms have. This is also part of Caroline's movement. It's counterintuitive and kind of unsettling to conventional psychiatry. But I think it it holds out a lot of hope. Well, I was going to say, do you feel like that's next? Do you think that this is possibly the next wave? I do, but that's going to make me sound very naive and even <laughs> Pollyannish. Um, and I'm not so naive to think that psychiatry is going to give up its claim of scientific authority all too quickly. Um, but I will say two things. One is that a man named Stephen Hyman psychiatric geneticist, longtime head of the National Institute of Mental Health, so the biggest psychiatric research organization in the world, said to me, look, we have come to a place that cries out for epistemological humility. Mm -hmm. What he meant was, we need to acknowledge that we don't know. And I think if psychiatry would now start from that premise. And this isn't to be scientifically nihilistic. Again, part of the book is just about the fascinating places that we have started to get to in the brain. But from that place of not knowing, we might be able to engage with people who are suffering in a much more individualized way and in a way that trusts that those people might know something about what's best in terms of their treatment even if they are sometimes inhabiting worlds that are not exactly our own. And that might be a good place to start from, a profoundly different place to start. Hmm. Daniel, one of the things I loved about this book is just the way that you write. Obviously, you are a, a journalist and you have a wonderful capability to capture these stories and to convey kind of understanding of what's going on inside of people, or at least uh, bring us that vision of what's going on inside of people. And obviously much of this book is about your brother, but it also feels very personal to you. And I don't know if you thought about this, but uh, you know, how much of this story is about your life as well as as this uh, therapeutic uh, exercise for you and kind of looking at, you know, how to process your own history with your brother as well as your family and other pieces of this? Or or was it truly just more of a journalistic kind of exploration into these, these other stories? You're absolutely right. It was not a purely journalistic exploration <laughs> at all, although every bit of it is factual and fact-checked over and over. Mm-hmm. No, this is really personal. It's personal because 
a big part of it is about our family and the very different subjective realities we had even inside our family. So, you know, I don't want to overstate something. It's like we're all living in our own alternate realities. I'm not seeing quite what you're seeing. Me and my brother weren't seeing the same parents yeah. at all. Right. Um, and then, yeah, there are moments in the book where I felt like I should become really personal. So there's a small section that talks about suicidal thinking that I felt like I should just include because I feel like there are many more people than we like to acknowledge who go to those dark places sometimes. And that that comes with a sense of like fundamental failure and shame and it needn't. It also, again, comes, <laughs> you know, luckily I get to do it behind the screen of it's like the pages are there and I'm <laughs> sure <here. laughs> so right. there's a kind of safe distance. But really, if I called a hotline and said what I'd said on the page, you know, I'd probably have an ambulance or a police car at my door, but I'm not sure that's the right approach. Again, it's that rush. It's that understandable terror that we feel we want to control. But what if we didn't rush to control? What if we just took a breath and listened and heard in a profound way? Or I'm going to borrow from one of the really hardcore neuroscientists who said, I'm about to get woo-woo on you. She was uncomfortable with that, where she was about to go. But she just said, this isn't, mental health isn't like healing a broken leg or recovering from a physical disease. It's something else. And we need to find ways to hold our pain rather than rush to suppress it. We need to find ways to think expansively so that pain has its inevitable part in our lives. And it's that doesn't make it quite unbearable. It, it gives pain meaning rather than giving it purely the ability to instill terror. That is beautifully said. I'm glad you pulled up that woo-woo part of the discussion. I think that that is pretty cool. Something this is is a little bit tangential, but something that struck me about the book is that it's very much in the time and place. And I don't know if this is your journalistic side or your personal side sort of floating to the surface, but you know, you, you spoke pretty directly about the experiences of uh, Trump and the election, uh, Derek Chauvin being convicted you know, of George Floyd's murder. You know, these are important backdrops. And I just wonder, what would the book have been like had you not played sort of that, those elements of background? You know, do you think it would have been different? I guess. I, I'm sure it would have been different, I suppose. But but would it have been your story as much? I think those elements come up particularly because of David's story. And they mm -hmm. play such a big role because he is a civil rights crusader and civil rights lawyer. And he's so robbed of his sense of will and sense of competence that he feels he can't do battle in the ways that he should as he worries about uh, what's coming with the 2020 election or, you know, first time around, you know, with the Muslim ban, which should become part or directly adjacent to his work. But 
you're asking something that raises a bigger question for me and an important one, which is that the specificity for me is everything, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some ways, the themes of the book are pushing toward a more individualized reckoning with our mental health. And so to remove that kind of specificity would be odd to me, counterproductive to me. It's all about that. Going back to Steve Hyman for a sec, the former head of National Institute of Mental Health, we had great conversations because I get that finally science can't be completely individualized because, of course, science relies on classifications, on categories in order to study things. And yet I think we've probably lost our sense of balance because with us, with you know, our psyches, ourselves, our souls, if you're willing to go that far, we're so different one to the next of us that perhaps we've gone too far. Psychiatry and its need to make itself a hard science forgot a bit of that individualized vision that's so necessary. I think it's really interesting when you talk about this idea of, you know, the individualized part of it, but also going back to what you said before, this idea that we have been trying to take pain and just uh, push it away as opposed to realizing that it's part of our life and how do we live with it and how do we take it to the next level. We talked with Paul Bloom, who wrote The Sweet Spot, um, The Pleasures of Suffering and Search for Meaning. And and again, his wasn't about the idea with, um, you know, mental health so much just as in our general everyday life that we don't, that we we try to keep suffering away and pushing it all, all that away. And his premise, I think, is a little bit of what, what you're saying as well, is that no, that's part of life and, and we need to embrace it. We need to understand how it fits in because without that, we don't get some of the other aspects of life that come from this. And so I don't know if that resonates with you or if it if this is a, a whole different side because it is, it, it's, it's a different level, I think, that you're talking about than what Paul was talking about. But I still think there's similarities there. It very much resonates with me. So my mind's going in a couple of directions. One is back to the very hardcore neuroscientist who apologized for the woo-woo and then said, you know, kind of as a personal model, she thinks of the old Paul Simon lyric, Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, Uh, and uses that as a way to think about, okay, these moments of darkness have meaning. Um, They are integral to my life, not to be pushed away. But then... Let's go to a more extreme situation. So with Caroline, and I don't want to be naive, and I've been rightly critiqued uh, by some who's worried that I'm taking too strong of an anti-medication stance. I'm not. I'm not here to sort of preach against medication for those who get real benefit out of it and for those whose benefits far outweigh what can be really devastating side effects. But if you think about Caroline, so she suffered the worst of the worst of, uh, you know, voices and, and torment. Because the drugs did not work for her, as they don't for many, she had to find another way. And that way very much includes finding meaning in experiences hallucinatory experiences that others 
would find terrifying. And then from there, sort of spreading the word about that. So one of the aspects of her movement is to seed across the country, hearing voices, support groups. And for short, just picture an AA group. And what happens, though, in the hearing voices groups is, again, I think counterintuitive to many. You're not worrying that by sharing these alternate experiences, you're going to give them greater life. In fact, quite the opposite. You're, one, finding meaning within them, jointly finding ways to cope with that meaning, sometimes talking to the voices and finding ways to negotiate time with the voices and time not with the voices. This sounds, again, kind of like lunacy, but I've watched it really have profound effect. And for me, you know, after several years now, to spend time with Caroline is to spend time with someone who profoundly reoriented me about our psyches. I think there's something to that old statement of like, don't think of the pink elephant and what do you do? You you can only think of the pink elephant. And this idea that by embracing this, by taking charge of it and saying, this is part of me, and, and then it doesn't have the same component weighing on you. And again, I'm not a, I have a psychology degree, but I'm not a psychiatrist and that's not the area that I've studied. But there is something there that I think is very profound in the way that we approach this from the perspective of saying, let's not push things away. Let's accept them for what they are when it's appropriate and be able to, to take that and, and use that as a, as a tool to help us overcome. And I love Caroline's story, by the way. And I think that is, a, you know, just a really profound change in kind of perspective. Yeah, I love her story, too, which is why I couldn't pull myself away and had to write it. It's interesting when I wrote the book proposal. So for people who don't know, in in the nonfiction world, you tend to go out there with, let's say, a 30 page pitch. Caroline wasn't in it. I don't think we'd met yet or if we had just barely. And then I just got to know her and got to know the roller derby part of the story and other elements and just heard her think and just thought, no, this is this is kind of where I want to be. And and just to give you one example that came up recently. So she'll often, her voices are still really prominent part of her life. And fairly regularly, she'll just ask me to repeat a question because her voices had drowned me out. That to a conventional psychiatry would be a big alarm bell and, you know, route that person back to medication right away. But then alternately, the other day with Caroline, I was complaining that my book group had decided to read Moby Dick and that I didn't know whether I could face rereading that thousand pages. And she launched into a disquisition on why she loved Moby Dick. That was so complex and engaging that I thought, no, I'm going to be quiet and I'm going to reread Moby Dick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good luck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that We've touched on music just a little bit. And for those of you who have not read the book, music is just littered throughout the entire book. I mean, you've got, you know, pop and rock and classics and, you know, the, the references are, are just numerous. And by the way, for those listeners who do not know that the Stanley brothers are Ralph and Carter Stanley, maybe maybe you've heard the Oh Brother, Where Out Thou, thou uh, soundtrack and you might have heard Ralph Stanley on that just for, for the sake of grounding. But 
Was it unavoidable? Was it just inevitable that music was going to feature prominently in the in the book? Not just because of Bob, but maybe because of your own musical journey? I think it was largely I want to credit my brother because it plays such a big role both early and then late in the book. And again, I want readers to discover that later phase. Yeah. I think it's been a really big part of my life too. I mean, my previous book, Sing for Your Life, is immersed in the opera world and in the story of this really improbable now opera star who grew up quite poor, rural Virginia, black, locked up, solitary confinement as a kid, and now is pretty close to the pinnacle of the opera world and performing at the Met and other prominent, prominent stages. So yeah, I th- I think part of it is that well, it's, it's twofold. One is that music speaks to us in such an immediate way. And I've always envied that because of course, writing, I'm aiming for that, but I can't quite, inherently, I can't quite get there. I can't do what music can do, which is go straight, straight past the mind to the chest or wherever else we experience yeah, yeah. art form. So that's one. I guess the other thing is, and it's related to that, is that music has a kind of transcendent quality that I think is essential to some of the things my brother's getting at, some of the things Caroline's getting at, even David going back to the ukulele and Red River Valley, that I think is is just important because we've talked about this a little bit. In a way, the book's about the frustrations of science, despite the fascinations of it, and about the very difficult journey that these characters have gone through. But about two-thirds to three-quarters of the way through the book, I hope the book takes a kind of subtle, slow turn towards seeing things in a different way, and music plays a big part in that. You know, anecdotally, I've been a performing musician for most of my life, and uh, starting in college, I started uh, getting involved in sort of pro-social work with music, using music as a pro-social tool, and came very early in my playing career in contact with people who were mentally ill, who had struggled with mental illness and found music could be really therapeutic, uh, which kind of led me down through uh, a whole variety of, of different organizations over the years and used music sort of anecdotally. But is there something that is maybe underappreciated about the ability to leverage music in a therapeutic way for folks who are struggling? I suspect, yes. So one obvious example that you're probably aware of is that Alzheimer's patients who seem to be unable to remember anything else, and this has been part of my brother's story, can remember perfectly the lyrics of songs that moved them 40 years ago. And so you can get a group of patients together who seem completely dysfunctional otherwise and, and give them a really redemptive experience My brother does this now in all kinds of ways, including, I'll tell you a corny story, in my life, because every year we have an annual event at my house. I'm lucky to have a few other really accomplished musicians in my life, and they get together, and every guest 
we all sing together, not Christmas carols and not, you know, <laughs> just songs that are in this steadily thickening songbook that we've accumulated. And the only rule is that you can't walk in and stand in the corner and make cynical remark. If, as long as you sing, <laughs> you can sing off key and you can do whatever else, but you, you know, full throated sound has to come from your throat. And it's, it's kind of a spiritual experience. It's just, it takes us out of ourselves. Uh, that is so cool. <laughs> I love that. Come join us. Uh, I, I would be the off key person. Tim would be a wonderful That's, addition to your, to your group. I, on the other hand, would, would I, I would be very hard pressed not to be the cynic in the corner, but I would try. But you would be full throated, Kurt. You are, <laughs> yeah. You would, and that's that's all that matters. Uh, that is all that matters. Actually, getting back to the research, there is some nascent research, and unlike the Alzheimer's uh, studies, which I think are fairly well established, there is some nascent research looking at whether music could have an equally beneficial effect in the in cases of psychosis. And again, I think part of that is just that communal experience. Psychosis is such a private state because, you know, despite the differences in realities that we allude to, you know, that are common between uh, me and you, you know, with hallucinations, you can really feel like you're in your own world and that can be frightening. And I think that the idea is that music can help bridge that and create a more communal feeling. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. And I, I think with that, I, I just want to say thank you so much, Daniel, for being a guest on Behavioral Grooves. This has really been our pleasure. Thanks. Mine too. Thanks for a great conversation. Thank you. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with Daniel, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our mentally complex brains. Boy, isn't that the truth? There's wisdom in that, man. I think Daniel would say, yeah, we have complex brains, but the idea that mental health is complex is one of the key insights that I got from our conversation, but also from the yeah. book that that this idea that we have a single solution or that the solution is a pill or an easy fix is kind of Pollyanna. And we should be really looking at a multitude of different approaches and different solutions and that the, the standard approach might not be right for everybody. Agreed. He talked about the childhood bipolar diagnosis increasing 40-fold, I think it was, in the last 10 years, right? And is kind of questioning, is that diagnosis just being overused? And maybe it is a false indicator, right? But also, childhood suicide is up 40% since 1999 in one study I reviewed. So there are certain aspects of this where you go, which is leading, right? It, which, which is the leading indicator? Is there is the diagnosis being, you know, acclaimed right. first? And, and then, but on the other hand, the environment that we're living in, the world has changed. The expectations about what it means to be a healthy human being have shown up. Our roles in how we live have, have been modified. And all of those probably take a little bit into account for some of this rise in some of the mental illnesses that we're seeing. And that could be the key piece there. 
Well, and he alludes to this. He talks about antidepressants and, and uh, antipsychotics mm-hmm. you know, to some degree. And maybe just human DNA is just more complex than we're giving it credit for. Kind of getting back to your idea of we like simple solutions to complex problems. Ah, yes, you know, of course. This is human nature. And maybe we've been taking mental health a little too simply, I suppose, or treating it too simply. And and that's not to say, and, and you and I have both worked a lot with ph- the pharmaceutical industry. It's not to say that antidepressants don't work nope. in many, many situations. And that there are people who, for them, the medication is significant. Without that medication, they couldn't live a happy, productive, normal life. But that isn't the case uh, across the board. And and for some, it's an, an addition to, it's an, a yes and, and for others, it is a no but. And so yeah. you have to take a look at the individual and bring an idiosyncratic kind of approach to mental health. And I think it's really, really complex. And that's the hard part. As you said, we look for those simple solutions. I mean, God, if there was a diet pill out there that I could take and lose 30 (laughs) pounds, you damn bet I would do it. But that's not the, you know, it's not that easy. Uh, What did you think about the Turkey Prince story? (laughs) How how about that for, you know, uh, ancient therapy just coming to life? I, you know, I, so I really, when I read it in the book, I was like, what, what, what are we, you know, before I read, I mean, you you have the title and it's like the Turkey Prince. Okay. But this idea of getting down on the level and of, of getting ingrained with, who the person is and what they're experiencing and showing up at their level as opposed to trying to say, no, just, you know, sit at the table and be normal. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I think it's, it's interesting. Well, I, I had eight years of Jesuit education and uh, Jesuits do a lot of outreach into, you know, a lot of social outreach. And gosh, from the time I was in high school, there was always this sense of if you're reaching out to people who are different than you start by, by being like them, being in their space. Don't don't rise above it. Don't take yourself out of it. Walk into their shoes, you know, walk into their situation yeah. and and try to experience life a little bit from where they're coming from. If nothing else for empathy, yeah. right? Because the turkey prince, the, the whole being with therapy is kind of empathetic. Yeah. On, I, a, on a massive I problem. mean, how many people do you know that have changed their behavior because they were told the facts about what they were doing wrong? <laughs> Um, let me count on, oh, wait, I don't know. Zero. Sorry. (laughs) None. (laughs) And we know this, we know this as a thing, right? Nobody. All right. Nobody's pretty. Maybe that's. Yeah. Maybe very few people change behavior, particularly when it is something as complex about like being depressed or anxious or other things about the facts. If you just tell, well, you shouldn't be anxious about getting up and giving a speech. Everybody does it. And then, you know, no, yeah. you can't get hurt from that. That doesn't change the fact that you're anxious and nervous about it. You need to do, have different pieces about those things. And so I think it's really fascinating, this idea, as you said, the being with therapy as opposed to the being told therapy. So another question I have that Daniel brought up that I thought was really cool is to what degree are the, is the... I don't know, the paparazzi, the the literazzi, the psychorazzi, I don't know, the people who who are the leaders in the the you know 
psychological, especially psychiatric world, are they kind of caught to some degree in a status quo bias? Mm. So is there room for really deep investigation of psilocybin and LSD and MDMA, which we've talked to guests about in the past, who people who have had really great results with these things, not to say that everybody should, we're not recommending that, I'm not recommending that, or that it might, that might be good for you. I don't know, but maybe there could be sort of a status quo bias that is preventing uh, the psychiatry, you know, kind of from advancing forward. It was a good question. Like any science, I think there are camps that develop and, Mm -hmm. you know, the research that I have done, you kind of feel a sense of ownership over it. There's an endowment effect. And so, yes, there is definitely status quo. I do think, and, and this has happened in probably the last five years, in my opinion, and I'm not, haven't really researched this or studied this much, but that it is much more open now that there are many more studies that are looking at you know, some of these alternative methods in order to approach yeah. this alternate, you know, natural elements that kind of maybe more mind altering kind of things along with therapy, as Daniel mentioned in the in the session, the research, at least from what he kind of quoted is, yeah, you know, magic mushrooms can work, but they work in those instances where they're tied with really in-depth therapy and you have to do it really right. smartly and doing different pieces I could I could see that. I also think there's a neuroscience, right? Neuroscience oh, yeah. is again expanding the way that we understand how the brain operates. It, still, we are at like the very beginning of understanding our brain. What was it? I was just seeing a neuron has ten thousand different dendrites and axioms, and a single neuron, and we have a billion plus neurons in our brain. <laughs> so you know, trying to understand how all of those work that, yeah. that's just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Shout out to, uh, well, just a quick shout out to Dania Alameda, who was a wonderful guest talking about the the neuroscience of childhood trauma mm. and what that causes from a mental health perspective down the road. I think that, that that's just an interesting tie-in. I was really influenced by uh, Daniel Bergner's comments about pain. Because mm, you just when, love the pain, don't you, man? No, Feel I the pain. do not. Yeah. No, I'm a hedonist. I'm, <laughs> I, I, I am. But when he started talking about don't try to, don't rush, I think the words he used was don't rush to suppress pain, right? That our natural inclination is to rush to suppress. He said, maybe we just have to hold the pain. And it kind of like, and I don't know if you said this, it, maybe it was in the book, but it was like childbirth. There's pain in childbirth, yeah. right? But women go through it all the time because of a whole variety of other motivations. But we endure that. Marathoners go through pain during the run. But is that different from mental illness where you don't know when the next episode is, when the next voices in your head are going to come, when when you start to feel this incredible disconnection with the social world or things like that, uh, where it's less predictable and less controllable? Yeah, and you don't have, you know, the marathon ends, childbirth right. ends, you know, yeah. it, you don't know when or how the the pain from depression or whatever other mental component that you have is going to end. And that, that I think the uncertainty, I wrote this in my journal the other night is just this idea of, you know, change is hard, but what about change? And it's about the uncertainty of change, you know, because we go through change all the time. The hard part is this idea that it's uncertain as to what is going to happen. And I think that's the same thing. There's an uncertainty that comes with, you know, having this. And again, I'm not an expert in this. So, 
could be way off. But it, it reminded the pain piece reminded me of Paul Bloom and our oh, conversation sure. with Sweet Spot and this idea that living life is not this constant treadmill of happiness upon happiness upon happiness upon happiness. <laughs> Isn't right. it? I thought it was. Well, you as a humanist would love that, right? But this, but we have to, and you mentioned this in a conversation we had earlier today with a client, is there's troughs. You have to have, and it's not saying you need to go in depression, but you can't. But all, there's ups and downs. There's ups and downs. And this idea of rushing to suppress the downs is probably, again, to your point, there might be a different alternative to thinking about this. And I think that's what Daniel is pointing to is that the solution of suppressing that pain through medication, through some other way, may not be the best solution for everybody. Maybe, uh, like Daniel said, we need to give pain meaning. Mm. I thought it was such an interesting concept. And I don't know exactly where to go with that, but I found this whole discussion about pain and giving pain meaning, holding pain, rather than just suppressing it, I just found fascinating. Yeah, I think when we think about the future, right, Daniel brings up some really interesting ideas here. What One, we need to do more research in broader areas, not just the medicines, but different types of therapies, different types of uh, interventions, all sorts of different things, right? We also need a status quo kind of step back, something to look and say, hey, are we doing this right today? What about the system is broken and what can we do immediately, not five years down the road, not 10 years down the road, what do we need to do now? Yeah, what he called it, uh, what, epistemological humility, mm. all right? I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. yeah, and then, you know, we just need to make sure that we can allow more progressive research to take place and make sure that it's ethical and, and good research, not just, you know, somebody trying to sell their little right magic pill and do that which could be problematic mm-hmm. right when there's a uh, conflict of interest this the research needs to be done right in order for us to really believe in it as, as far as i'm concerned well tim i think we have probably could talk about this for a lot a lot longer but i think it's important we mention something first that if you know someone who needs help or you yourself need help again please see the show notes on this episode Uh, We have a link to an international resource page with phone numbers and websites for dozens of countries. If you're hurting, please reach out for help. And just to give you that right now, it's the mental health guide is HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www.helpguide.org forward slash find dash help dot HTM. And if you go out there and you're having issues, please go out to that check it out, talk to somebody, get the help that you need. It's important. Yeah, thanks, Kurt. There is more to discuss, but maybe more importantly, there's more to be researched and we need to keep moving forward in our understanding, really, and of the complexities of mental illness, I think. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I would have to say, I think we've come a long way since Freud in the early part of the last century, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, we're not necessarily doing, you know, going in through eye sockets and tearing out parts of our brains and... <laughs> Different things like we used to, you know, lobotomies as they used to do. So, but I don't think it's come far enough. I can't help but thinking uh, I have a brother who has Down syndrome, and you know, he's fifty-two years old. But when he was born, they said he'll be lucky to live forty years. Mm. Like that would be a reach if he made it to forty. And so, I would say that the road 
ahead is just full of opportunity in the world of mental health. You know, uh, thanks to technology, environmental changes and stuff, I can see how somebody with Down syndrome is living a really great quality of life. And he brings joy to many, many people he has relationships with. So there could be a lot better ways of treating mental illness, I guess is, is kind of what I'm saying. And, and I think the future holds some bright spots. And whether that be through pharmaceutical companies, through other research and yeah. different alternative ways, all of it together is, is where I think there's hope. And again, 50 years down the road, if we were doing this conversation then, this would be a whole different conversation. And I, I, and, and I think would that be. would be very fascinating. And I think, as Daniel mentioned, that the best research hasn't really cracked the code on which therapies are best for any individual. That's the piece that's that individual differences and in how people mm -hmm. need to show up. And from being with therapies, the turkey, you know, analogy, <laughs> right, to prescription pharmaceuticals, to mushrooms. There's a lot that we just don't know and we need to explore. Agreed. You know, our cultural norms these days, I just want to say that, you know, that we just, ex we kind of touched on this, but we expect these quick fixes, right? Just give me the fix for something. Give me and the pill. Like, give me the pill, man. Come on. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's got to be impacting the way physicians think about, you know, treatments and, and prescriptions these days as well. Yeah, it's, it's very likely, but we really don't know for certain. What we do know and what we hope for is that mental illness needs more in-depth research. Yeah, well said, Kurt. And as always, we want to thank you for listening to Behavioral Grooves. We hope you found something in our conversation with Daniel today that can you can take with you, you know, this week to help you to go out and find your groove. <laughs>